Hi, Chelsea. Thanks for um, coming on and talking with me today. I'm happy to. Thanks so much for having me. So I came across uh, your work on narcissism with your book, If Only I'd Known, which mm -hmm. came out in August. Um, just to get some context and background into you and your work, what what kind of took you down this road on, you know, a topic that's, you know, as, as niche as narcissism? Um, you know, what what led you into this being being your interest in the thing that you wanted to focus on? Yeah, it was definitely something that unfolded over my life as I dealt with narcissists in different ways. But I just didn't mm. really recognize it until much later. So in my household, I kind of grew up with a more neglectful narcissistic father, and we can get into different types, but more yeah. of just that emotional coldness, um, the the ne neglect, just not being emotionally present. I got used to that cycle of abuse where things would be okay. And then there would be that tension buildup. There would be some kind of emotional incident. Promises would be made. Things would be okay for a little bit. Then it would happen again. So by the time I got into adulthood, I was very used to this hot and cold in relationships. And that's really what makes up the foundation of a narcissistic relationship mm -hmm. is it feels very unpredictable. There, there are patterns, but it's hot and cold. And that's what I hear so often from people is like, if this were always bad, it would be easy yeah, to right. leave. But it's like, I think there's something here to save or some days we have, you know, good time. So maybe we can make it work. Maybe it's just a miscommunication issue. So I had those experiences throughout my adult relationships. And then I started noticing these patterns in clients in relationships as well, where they were ruminating about things things did not add up no matter how hard mm -hmm. they try they couldn't make the relationship better or couldn't make it work and so you know after after my own problems in relationships and trying to help my clients i looked into what in the world could be going on and that's when i really dove into narcissism and narcissistic abuse and relational trauma because from that framework everything started to make sense yeah. and ever since then i've been fully specializing in narcissistic abuse, relational trauma, CPTSD, and helping people make sense of these relationships that seem so senseless. Yes. So diving into narcissism and learning more about that helped you kind of, I guess, get a grasp or um, clarify like, you know, the pattern long term from like the day to day instabilities. Because like, like we were talking about before we started, it seems yeah. like one of the bigger issues with narcissism is how, like you said, hot and cold it is. And that you, you don't know at any given time what you can expect. So you, you learning more about narcissism was able to help you, um, I guess, clarify that pattern and find the stability like long term within like the day to day instability. Yeah. Yeah. To make sense of what's happening, because that's what I was experiencing. What so many of my clients are experiencing mm -hmm. is you feel like like you had said, it's kind of a coin toss on what you're going to get that day. And that really speaks to the narcissistic cycle of abuse that happens not only throughout the relationship, like not only through the whole length of the relationship, but it can happen in the same day, week or month. Yeah. And so that narcissistic cycle of abuse, which is the idealized or also called love bombing, where things are good, promises are made, you know, you're making plans for the future, you think you're really investing and things are going well to the devalue phase. And that's where the criticisms, gaslighting, belittling, triangulating, all that happens. Then there's the discard where the narcissist either leaves the relationship or emotionally discards mm -hmm. you by acting in ways that are highly disrespectful, betraying you, making decisions that impact you without talking to you about it. 
And then some narcissists continue the cycle of abuse with the Hoover phase, where they essentially suck you back into the relationship. They start yeah. making promises about how things are going to be different in the future. If you would just give them another chance or just be right. patient enough with them, things will get better. And so when you're in that, like in that cycle, you feel like you're in a tornado. It's mm -hmm. not until you're able to step out of it and look at the pattern and go, oh, like this cycle continues to happen. It's not going to stop. That's yeah. when you can start to make sense of it. So that's, that's the, I guess the fundamental pattern that, that these types of people tend to, um, inflict or present in relationships. What, what mm -hmm. is the, you know, there's the various types, which, which we'll get into, um, is, is there, you know, a fundamental theme or like one main thing that among all the different types that is kind of, um, getting that pattern started, like that they're trying to get out of that. That explains why, why, why they have that characteristic cycle. Yeah. So the hallmark trait of narcissism is a lack of empathy. Narcissists simply don't care how their behaviors impact you. And they're kind of annoyed or disgusted if you share your emotions with them. Yeah. But the, the key thread that goes through all the types of narcissists, whether we're talking about the grandiose narcissist, which is that arrogant type or the vulnerable narcissist, which looks almost depressed and sad and withdrawn. All narcissists are entitled. So you kind of, when you're around them, you feel this pull to please them, entertain them, just generally do whatever they want. And you feel like there's, there's always this one up or one down with them. Like they're either comparing themselves to mm -hmm. others in a sense of I'm better than them, I've succeeded more than them in that arrogant kind of way, or they're comparing themselves to others like, why can't life go for me like it does for so-and-so? Why doesn't the world see how great I am? Why has life been so unfair to me? And that's the vulnerable narcissist type. But yeah. no matter what type you're dealing with, there is that entitlement, that sense of the rules don't apply to me. I'm always the exception. Nothing is really ever my fault. Or if it is, then I only did that because you made me do that. Mm -hmm. That very entitled mindset. And that's both in like in relationships and in external outcomes, like, 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 so that, that applies to not only like, you should be there for me when, whenever I want, or like, you should do this mm -hmm. or that for me whenever I want. And also like, maybe my career should be going like this. Maybe my health should be going like, so it's both things at once. Yes. It's not just yes. social. Exactly. Yeah. It's within relationships. Like, and that's what's so hard is you can't connect with someone who's bent right. on controlling you. Yeah. And that's really what narcissists are about. It's control, not connection. They yeah. want to feel better than in interpersonally. And yes, in their life too, they expect that they will be more successful or that they are going to get this praise and adoration simply for being a decent human being. And that speaks to that entitlement as well. So no matter where they are, they have this sense of the world should kind of serve me and function in the way that yeah. I want it to. And that's really how narcissists approach relationships in a very transactional way. Yeah. I often describe it like narcissists view people like a healthy person views products. So <laughs> me and my coffee maker have a great relationship. I get up <laughs> yeah. in the morning, it makes me coffee, it serves the function I want it to in my life. Right. If I got up in the morning and my coffee maker wasn't working, I'd probably throw it out and get a new one. 
but that's how narcissists treat people. It's in this mm. very functional way. Like you're either serving me in my life right now, but either making me look good or I'm benefiting from you in some way, or I'm able to control you and kind of, you know, release my anger and frustration out on you and blame things on you. However you fit into a narcissist's life, it's because you're functioning in a way that benefits them. And if you stop functioning in a way that benefits them, then that's often when they start lashing out even more or creating space and discarding you. So, so you can use that, the, you know, maybe control that they have over the, over the relationship or the benefit that they're feeling. You can use that as a way, like, I guess, kind of a meter to tell, like, maybe what phase in the cycle they would be in or like how they might be, which one they may lean towards. It's like, you know, if, if, if they feel like they have a lot to gain, maybe they're an idealize or in Hoover, but then like when they start feeling that way or stop feeling that way and it stops being so beneficial to them, then th that's when they'll move more into like devalue, um, discard. Yeah. You can definitely, you know, guarantee that how a narcissist treats you has to do with what's going on in their world. And that's, okay. I think, sometimes why people are, are confused about narcissism, because sometimes they can be nice and charming and charismatic and they're fun to be around. And then the next day you do one thing or say one thing out of turn and they're raging at you or criticizing you or belittling you. And it feels so unstable. And that's because their yeah. emotions depend on their level of narcissistic supply. That's the attention, validation, admiration that they expect to receive from other people. So if you catch a narcissist on a good day, when supply is high, someone just flirted with them, they just got a compliment, they got a promotion at work, then they can seem well-regulated. But if you catch a narcissist on a bad day when supply is low, someone else got their promotion, they're being treated like a normal person instead of royalty. Mm -hmm. Then they can become rageful and sullen or really withdrawn and depressed. And and you can think of it like this. Let's say a presentation didn't go well at work or you didn't get the promotion at work. You wouldn't necessarily go home and rage at your kids and spouse because of that. Like we all can have bad days, but a narcissist would and would feel that they can go and rage at their kids or be in a bad mood and criticize and put it out, you know, blame everybody else for it at home. And they would feel entitled to act that way and they would do so consistently. Mm-hmm. So the, the narcissistic supply that, that level is kind of their driver. Is, is that a, yeah. it, it, is it something like a bottomless pit or is there a point where they're like, all right, I've had enough, leave me alone. Does it depend on the type? Mm. It's a bottomless pit. Okay. Narcissistic. So I, I kind of pair narcissistic supply with a healthy person's version of self-esteem. So a healthy sure. self-esteem is based on authenticity, like who I am at home is who I am in public. I have goals. I work to achieve them. Narcissist version of supply is what the world thinks of me. So if they're being perceived as successful, attractive, well-liked, you know, a do-gooder in the community, then they can feel good about themselves. So they don't have to be good to feel good about themselves. They just have to mm. look good. Yeah. And there is no end. To that that's why they're always seeking new supply and why a lot of times if you're in a romantic relationship with the narcissist you feel a constant pull to entertain them because narcissists are very novelty seeking they get bored quite easily so they're 
or easily wander to, you know, someone else giving them a compliment, or they always like to kind of keep supply on the side, like someone that they can go to, to get that validation, attention, admiration. So a lot of times you feel like they're, they're wandering or that you have to entertain them in order to keep them invested in the relationship, which is just no way to have a healthy relationship. Yeah. It, it seems like sometimes the, that desire for that kind of supply seems like it, it can be just overwhelming and impulsive at times. Is it, Mm-hmm. Is it something like like an addiction of sorts? Like, like could it be like, like is it something like a psychological addiction where they're just addicted to that feeling, that supply, just like various addictions, like maybe gambling or what, like whatever the thing is. Like, is there a certain feeling that they're just kind of latched onto that they just like can't get away from? So the core of narcissism is is their insecure ego, like whether they're grandiose or vulnerable or whatever type they have this insecure ego. And instead of dealing with that and addressing it and actually trying to self-reflect and, and improve, they create lots of defense mechanisms to protect that ego, like projection, so that where mm-hmm. they accuse you of doing what they're doing, they'll engage in things like denial, denying what they did, denying that they did anything wrong, denying your yeah. reality, which moves into gaslighting. So whatever yeah. a narcissist does, it's really to, to protect that insecure ego to make them feel better than, to meet their needs for grandiosity and entitlement. So it's not so much an addiction as it is, it's a personality style characterized by grandiosity, entitlement, superficiality, Mm. superiority, interpersonal exploitativeness. They're quite antagonistic. So whatever they do is fueled to make themselves feel better. So you mentioned the defense mechanisms. and you know denial rejection um you know, projecting oh, their projection uh, projection i mean mm-hmm. um how, how much of that is intentional how like you, you write about mm-hmm. how their inability often to self-reflect and th- they're good at lying they're good at manipulating often uh, how much of that extends to, to themselves where they're just they're so good at like shifting blame and not not taking responsibility for things like do, do they know that they're doing it often like how, what level of this is conscious? Yeah. So this gets a little bit into the spectrum of narcissism. Mm. So the the lower end kind of scale of narcissism is your garden variety narcissist where they're entitled, they're superior, and they're just acting out of their own antagonism and entitlement. They aren't necessarily intentionally being cruel to you, but they are going to put themselves first. They're going yeah. to be selfish and they're going to have a they have a lack of empathy. So what they do, you're just going to feel that they're quite insensitive when you're around them. But they're not necessarily intentionally being cruel. Now, if you go up yeah. the spectrum to a malignant narcissist, that's when you're flirting on the line of psychopathy and they are much more intentional. Like they will specifically be calculating and strategize of how to get you back or how to, yeah, how to... Um, basically pay you back for perceived wrongs or anything that you have done against them. But narcissists do have a lack of self-reflection, which is part of what makes working with them or them improving a real challenge because instead of self-reflecting, they're projecting onto other people. You're the problem. It's how you're taking it. It's what you're asking of me. If you would adjust your expectations, 
everything would be fine. So there is a lack of self-reflection, but what I always you know, want people to get is that once you tell someone that their behaviors are hurting you, then they know. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, in certain moments, narcissists do give you what they know you want. They will tell you things are going to get better. They'll set goals with you. They'll acknowledge just enough of their behavior to let you know, okay, they kind of get it, but we just need to keep trying and I need to keep helping them understand and eventually we'll get there. Yeah. So they acknowledge just enough to let you know that they know what they're doing. They just don't care enough to change it. Mm. it is, is there a way that, that they break out of that often? It, it doesn't seem like it's something that necessarily has to last forever, but it seems like maybe it often does. Like, is, is there something that allows those kinds of people to have more of a desire to change things or, or, mm. or do they mostly just kind of stay stuck? For the most part, they stay stuck. If narcissism is set, it's a very rigid personality style. So yeah. by the time someone is mid to upper 20s, then our personalities are quite set. We might change slightly. Like if you're on a one to 10 scale, if you're an extrovert that's like at an eight, you're not going to become a two and become yeah. basically an introvert. Like mm -hmm. you might go up to a nine or down to a seven, but you're going to stay a right, you know, right around where you are. And that's the same with narcissism because it is a personality trait and style. And so once it's set in place, it's quite rigid and resistant to change. So you, you mentioned the, the spectrum, uh, so mm -hmm. that, that, that takes us into the various types, which I think is an important part of the book because, um, like, like I was mentioning to you earlier, uh, often with with narcissism, you know, we, we might think of, you know, grandiose narcissism, that, that's kind mm -hmm. of the one that like, I think most people would be able to identify, but then there's all these other types, you have vulnerable, self righteous, neglectful, communal and, and malignant, mm -hmm. which I think uh, many of those are much more subtle, not all of them, um, but m many of them. And it seems like th those are much easier to kind of go under our radar. Could, could you, yeah. I guess, discern between those just, I guess, so we can have a better understanding of the various ways that, that this can present itself? Sure, yeah, so the grandiose narcissist is the one we most think of when we hear the term narcissist. That's the arrogant, entitled person who, if you have a more sensitive temperament, you might kind of feel like they're too much, like, oh, this yeah. person is just, I'm turned off because their personality is just so loud and so <laughs> much. But they can be a lot of fun. They can also be very charming and right. charismatic and come off very confident. So they often have a lot of people around them and they can be very successful in corporate spaces and business mm. because unfortunately that tends to be the type of leadership that gets elected into those positions. So we kind yeah. of are familiar with the grandiose. Mm. On the other end of the scale, we have the vulnerable narcissist. They're still entitled. So they still have that, you know, life's so unfair to me. Why doesn't the world treat me the way that they should? But they have two presentations depending on what serves them best at the time. One, they either come across as very nice like you think, I know for me, when I met my vulnerable narcissist, the one that made the biggest impact on me, I thought they're so nice, almost too nice. Like there's something that they're trying to make up for. And you're like, you know, mm -hmm. just take it down. Like you're so nice. Or they have this victim 
hood mentality, where they seem down on their luck, depressed, withdrawn, they're more socially anxious. A lot of people, even therapists, will mistake vulnerable narcissists for being depressed because that's how they present. You really know you're dealing with a vulnerable narcissist if you feel a lot of guilt and pity when you're around them. Like those are the mm -hmm. big emotions that you start to feel when you're around them because if you ever try to set boundaries or walk away or actually expect them to take accountability and like start helping themselves or start working towards something, that's when they blame you, guilt you for setting any boundaries or walking away because they feel entitled to your time, your resources, your money, and, and an endless amount. Um, you mentioned the communal narcissist. That is one where they're getting their narcissistic supply from being viewed as the humanitarians, do-gooders, philanthropists yeah. of the world. And these things are good that they do, but they aren't doing them for the sake of doing good. They're doing it for the attention and validation they expect to receive because of it. And if they don't get noticed for everything that mm -hmm. they're doing, then they also will become rageful or critical. And they're quite antagonistic to the people closest to them. So if this is your spouse, let's say, a communal narcissist will go out and volunteer for the, you know, community events, the bake sales will show up at every PTA meeting or be super involved in a nonprofit and a charity. And from the outside world, they look saint-like because they work endlessly to mm. present this self-sacrificial image of themselves. But at home, they're just as antagonistic and critical. And that's super disorienting to see what you have at home and, and what they look like out in public. The neglectful narcissist has the most understated love bombing or idealized phase. A lot of people find themselves with neglectful narcissists because of a practical reason, like you're getting older and you wanted to get married, or this person has the same religion that your family really values. And so it just like makes sense to, to stay mm -hmm. with this person. They, they're not super charming or charismatic or anything. They're more emotionally neglectful. They're withdrawn. You end up feeling like a ghost when you're dealing with a neglectful narcissist. They can be very communicative at work because that's where they tend to get their supply, like through a certain um, status or prestige at work or through their achievements. But at home, they can literally act like you don't exist until they need you for something. Mm -hmm. And the malignant narcissist, like I touched on earlier, is basically a cousin to the psychopath. It is yeah. said to be the pinnacle of the dark triad, the point at which psychopathy, Machiavellianism, and um, sadism like all collide. So if someone is singularly focused on power and they don't care how they get it and they're quite vengeful and calculating, then they are more of a malignant narcissist. So that's not only the desire for power, that also adds in sadism? Or, or is that just the the, yes. the narcissistic side of it? They are more sadistic because they okay. not only, they take pleasure in your pain because they see it as proof of their power. I got it. That makes sense. Well, what's okay. the difference between communal and self-righteous? It seems like there's like there may be an intersection there um, between those kinds of narcissism. Yeah, self-righteous. So they are quite rigid and hyper-moralistic. They tend to want to get supply for being seen as overly organized or rigid in a particular area, whether it be okay. how they fold their towels at home or the kind of routine that they keep. So communal narcissists are more focused on having this self-sacrificial image of being a humanitarian, do-gooder, philanthropist. Self-righteous okay. narcissists really get supply for being seen as very like 
on top of things, very rigid, you tend to feel very self-conscious when you're dealing with a self-righteous narcissist because they are so entitled and they're critiquing ver overtly or silently everything that you do. So you feel like you can't move. You feel like you have to be like a statue with them basically. Don't ever go out of line. Don't ever mess yeah. up anything that they have set up. So it's it's like a very rigid environment. You're just constantly walking on egg, on eggshells? Yes. To like the extreme. I think you are with yeah. every narcissist, but yeah, yeah. for self-righteous narcissists, it's like taken to a next level. The difference between grandiose and vulnerable is, is interesting because they seem so different. Like they're almost mm -hmm. like on, or are they on polar ends of that, of that spectrum? And like the way that they're presenting, because it, it, it seems like, like with, with grandiose, it's so in your face mm -hmm. that a lot of people would catch it. And like you mentioned with business and, um, you know, corporate jobs and, you know, I have a background in the sports world and there's, there's no shortage of that there. <laughs> it seems, it's like, it's, it's one of the weird personality disorders that is socially rewarded. Oh, but also 100%. people, are, but also people are very like turned off by it. So it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, yeah. well, sometimes it doesn't make sense. It's weird because well, people, like, yeah, people are attracted to confidence and yeah. grandiose narcissists seem so confident. They seem so put together and they tend to be extroverted. They tend to be good with people, pretty socially adept. Like, yeah, they might come across as a little bit too much at times, but they can tone it down. They're very charming and charismatic. You often don't know until you're with them because narcissism is a, is a, about patterns of behavior over time. So at first, you may think they're the best thing you've ever met and they're just so charming and you have so much fun and they're so energetic and you're having a great time until you start to see that other side. Yeah. How, and contrasting that with vulnerable... Mm -hmm. You, you you touched on it but like how, how how can we like better recognize that like when it's like the difference between somebody actually you know hurting and needing your help versus mm -hmm. somebody who's just trying to exploit your time and energy it, it seems like that's a very because i i've i've run into various of those or various situations like that and it's it's like a very weird tightrope to try to figure out what's even going on mm -hmm. like which one they're doing yes well Grandiose and vulnerable are actually two facets of narcissism. Those are the two that have been most researched. We still need a lot of yeah. research in these areas. But what's interesting is that it kind of depends on the supply level because the vulnerable aspects of narcissism, which are that extreme sensitivity to criticism and the negative emotions, kind of like the feeling sorry for themselves. Grandiose narcissists can actually experience that too if supply is low. Like if they're a grandiose narcissist but things That's aren't going well, then their vulnerable side, the vulnerable parts of narcissism will come out. So it's actually kind of, it's um, huh. just a different side of the same coin. Okay. And likewise, yeah. vulnerable narcissists at times, if things are going well, can seem like they're all, you know, put together, but when things are not going well, then obviously they'll go back to that vulnerable side. So the different types, it's just based on which side they're in more often. So grandiose narcissist is more often in the grandiose part of narcissism where they're entitled and superior and kind of taking that better than attitude. And vulnerable narcissists are just more in the hypersensitive to criticism, the entitled victim mentality. 
So it just depends on which one they present up like more of the time. So, so you can just, you, you can have anybody that just kind of bounces around between types and spectrums, depending on their circumstances, because I guess the thing that, that unites them is still that, that desire for narcissistic supply. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't really matter. And the entitlement. And it's important to yeah. recognize, you know, that narcissism is a personality trait. And so it's not just something like, well, if you're selfish or you acted defensively once in the last six months, well, now you, you're acting narcissistically. Mm-hmm. I think that's when it gets really tricky and dangerous. And that's why this word has blown up and why people almost say it as a joke now. Like, oh, you're a narcissist just because you did something selfish like that doesn't make you a narcissist narcissism is about observable patterns of behavior over time i think that's always really important to distinguish because then people worry oh well i can be a little bit selfish or maybe that was a little bit self-promoting am i a narcissist well do you act that way most of the time in most situations with most people then maybe there's something to look at but if it's a one-off thing and you're aware of it and you don't like that you're doing that and you're working to change it probably not probably not a narcissist yeah i i think that's an important distinction because but one of the things that that interested me in the book in the first place was like learning more about the the term in general because it seems like Mm -hmm. it's thrown around so much and i i knew i didn't really understand what it meant Mm -hmm. in in any real sense because outside of just like the way that people use it but it, it feels like there's something that's it's it feels like it's very easily overgeneralized and misused yes uh i'm i'm interested in in the in the smear campaign um element of it you you write that that's one of the more uh one of the more common things that they'll do it is it does does that present itself in different ways depending on the type is there like can that come back to bite them if people like over time, if people recognize that that's what they're doing, like is, is it, is it strategic or do they just, or is it like impulsive? It's definitely impulsive. Again, we have to think of this like empathic people act empathically. It doesn't take effort to, to be empathetic, to be kind. You just are. And so when we're talking about most narcissists, until we get into the malignant narcissist and into the psychopathy, which is more intentional, if we're talking about just most narcissists, they're just being narcissistic. Mm. They're just acting out of who they are. It doesn't take any effort for them to have a lack of empathy, to put their needs first, to be selfish. Like That comes as natural to them as an empathetic person being empathetic. Mm. And so the smear campaign is something that any type of narcissist can do, really. And it has to do, well, two things. It's usually happening while you're in a relationship. Let's say this is a romantic relationship. The, your partner, your narcissistic partner is likely going around telling people bad things about you behind your back, but you just don't know that it's happening. Like for instance, I've had some clients where they were married and their narcissistic spouse didn't want to go home to see their family, but they didn't want to tell their family that. So instead, they told the family that their husband was just so controlling, they wouldn't give them enough gas money to come see the family. Now, the husband had no idea that that the narcissistic wife was saying this. He just Mm -hmm. knew that the family didn't really like him. And so there's like this confusion that happens when someone's smear campaigning against you. And you're like, why do these people not like me anymore? Why do they have this idea of me? I never did anything to them. Well, it's likely that the narcissist has been going around planting seeds about who you are that are 
either complete lies or for, you know, twisted versions of the truth. And so it's happening while you're in the relationship, but it definitely happens when you're out of the relationship. Like let's say you break up or there's a divorce or something, then a narcissist is going around. I've seen narcissists actually make lists of people to contact to tell them a slightly different version of the story about why, you know, that mm. relationship ended. So it's t to get people's attention, it's to get their sympathy, it's to get the validation, yeah. and it's to control the narrative. Narcissists yeah. definitely like being in control. And so they will go to each person and tell them a lie, basically, or a very twisted version of reality to get that person's sympathy or agreement that it wasn't the narcissist's fault and you know to to make sure that people are seeing the breakup in the way that they want them to so any narcissist will do the smear campaign probably at some point in the relationship so so it's not only well so, so it's, it's two things it's they're proactively doing it to um get to control narratives and then go yeah. out and gain supply but then it's also, is it partially a defense mechanism, like a function of the blame shifting as well? So like you have both going on at once? Yeah, you know, I think that's that's a, a good point. It is because narcissists need to know that they're viewed in a certain way because that is what they really care about. They don't care about what actually happened in the relationship, whether they cheated or betrayed or anything. They don't care. They care about how the world sees them. So it's almost yeah. a way, it's their own, um, what's the word? It's like they are also trying to put a put a blanket on themselves or be comforted. Like if I can convince this person that it wasn't my fault, and then they'll tell me that it's not my fault, and then I'm going to feel better too. Yeah, yeah. So so that they can easily start actually believing what what they've been saying. Like if enough people are like confirming them, and like the narrative changes yeah. in such a way that they forget that they're even lying in the first place. Yes, it's that's a really it's a, it's an interesting way to look at things because yes, partly narcissists know that they're lying, but I do think that they lie for so long that even they get confused on what the lie and the truth is yeah because they do sell that narrative over and over and over again that they are the victim or they are the ones in the wrong or, and it was really the other person and then it gets really tricky when those people feed back to the narcissist that yeah that they were they were the the right ones in the relationship and and then the narcissist just has sold the lie for so long that they don't even know the truth anymore yeah, so it's like, it, it seems like in, in a relationship with somebody like that, you, th there's a problem where it's it's good to take accountability for things that you do wrong, because if if not, then you're just blame shifting as well. Mm -hmm. But they're they're twisting things so much that like, do you start or do you stop being able to tell the difference? Like, how how do you balance like, mm -hmm. oh, this person's just religiously rejecting any kind of accountability versus I might have done something wrong. It seems like it'd be extremely difficult to figure out which is true. Yeah, and essentially what you're describing is gaslighting that happens because gaslighting uh -huh. happens when someone denies your reality and it's a process. So there has to be a level of trust in the relationship for someone to gaslight you and to start to break down your own reality, your own belief in, in yourself and what's actually happening. So we can see this in relationships, in family, like if this person is your parent, then there's an assumed trust. Like we think, oh, this person wants what's best for me. And so there has to be that layer of trust. If you just meet someone, they don't really have the ability to gaslight you because mm -hmm. 
you don't trust them. Like if they, you meet someone and they say, oh, you didn't just say that, or I don't believe that, or they say something about you that you know is not to be true about you, then you're like, okay, well, that person doesn't know me. But if there's someone you trust, then they, they have the ability to gaslight you. So that's the first piece. The second piece is that they do lie. The narcissist just is lying. They are denying your reality. They're denying what was said, what happened, what they agreed to. So there is that denial of reality. And the last piece of gaslighting is that they tell you the problem is you, that you're going crazy, that if you would just look at the situation differently, if you would change your expectations, they find a way to blame it on you. And I've seen this happen like Let's say that survivors will be trying to figure out what is going on in the relationship. And they are experiencing anxiety or depressive symptoms or hypervigilance or confusion. So they finally go to therapy to try to help, to try to figure out what's going on. And then let's say that their symptoms, you know, do meet criteria for generalized anxiety disorder or mild to moderate depression. And then they go back to the narcissist and say, I have this, you know, generalized anxiety, or they find out that this person was diagnosed then the narcissist is able to say, see, it is you. It's your anxiety. It's your depression. And they'll run with that one of two ways. They'll either Mm -hmm. say, oh, look what I have to deal with, with this person. Like I'm trying to be such a support to them and their mental health issues. Or they will just say, you know, this is all your fault. And if you could just get yourself together, then this relationship would be fine. So there's definitely a process of breaking down your reality in these relationships. Yeah, so uh, let's let's go through some of the um, I guess symptoms then of of those relationships and the way that that they impact you. So is you, you go through various um, various different I guess categories. You have cognitive, mm-hmm. emotional, behavioral, physiological. The physiological one I I knew nothing about. Um, I I mostly thought it, thought it would just be like emotional and behavioral. So learning physiological and cognitive also was interesting. Um, do, like uh, underneath all of those, is it mostly the the insecurity, the hypervigilance, and um, just a damaged s- sense of self worth? Is that mostly what kind of sits at the root of of all of those, or or is it, or does it depend? It's so multi layered. Like there's yeah. so many ways that narcissistic abuse impacts you, and like you said in my book, I do break it down because. That is actually something that can help you know you're in a narcissistic or toxic relationship. Not only these external things we've been talking about, what you can look at as far as in the narcissist and those patterns of behavior, but also in yourself and changes in your physiology and your thoughts and your feelings. So the first red flag people are usually consciously aware of is changes in their thinking. You start ruminating a lot, second guessing yourself, trying to make sense of what's happening because there's there's so much confusion and self-blame that happens in these relationships and lots of cognitive dissonance, meaning there's a mismatch between your expectations and reality. Mm -hmm. So if you, let's say this person is is your partner, you kind of have an idea of who they are based on your first few months together, how long you've been together. And then let's say that they start acting differently. Now they're being more critical or what feels like passive aggressive, but you already have this view of this person that they're, they're nice. And so then there's a disconnect. So then we start rationalizing and justifying, saying, oh, they're probably just stressed. They didn't really mean it. I'm sure we can make things work. 
it's probably a miscommunication. It's probably that we have different love languages or we have different attachment styles. So you're trying so hard to figure it out what is going on. And we can stay in that cycle, honestly, for weeks, months, or years. Because until you realize you're with a narcissist, you think this problem is solvable. Like we just mm -hmm. have to figure out what it is, but it yeah. is solvable. But the reality is if you're with a narcissist, they want to keep the problem. And you can't solve a problem that someone else is creating. That problem will always be there because they're a narcissist. Yeah, so how, how do people, I guess, get out of that that loop of rationalization? And, and mm -hmm. you know, because we're there's such a strong pull to say, you know, like we can work this out. Like maybe if we give it enough time, like mm -hmm. things will kind of smooth, smooth over. Like these are various ways I can try to fix it. Especially if you're, if you're somebody who's like, you know, a, like who has more of like a active problem solving mentality where it's like, okay, yeah. like these are like the ways I can, you know, fit these various pieces together. I, at what point is, you know, are, are people able to just kind of say like, like this probably isn't, going to change because that's that's especially depending on the relationship that's a, a rough one if, if to swallow that pill it is it is yeah because you probably have so many reasons you don't want to see it and yeah. there's actually something called betrayal blindness where the mind will prevent you from seeing the things that would threaten the attachment mm -hmm. so if you really had to see that this person isn't who you thought they were or isn't good for you or isn't safe obviously you would have to disengage or maybe even in the relationship. And that's so painful that sometimes we're kind of almost blind to seeing it until the psychological shelf breaks. And there's just too many things that add up until eventually you're like, okay, this can't be right. But that can take, you know, so, so long. So what I tell clients to do is to start observing instead of reacting. When we're in a relationship, you're so close to the situation and you might have so many reasons that you want to believe this person is, is good for you or healthy or that this can be worked out. And so it's like trying to see a full picture of a painting when you're standing like an inch from it. Yeah. You're too close to the situation. All you can see is a bunch of colors and none of it makes sense. So you have to literally get that psychological distance from what you're seeing. So writing things down is a great way to do that, getting them out of your head onto paper, mm -hmm and writing things down, not like your interpretation, but facts. They said yeah. this, I said this, we agreed on this. Oh, then two days later, this happened. And now they deny that they ever said this. And then a week later and a month later, and then look at the patterns. Then you can go back and say, oh, they did say that. Like, I'm not crazy. We did agree to that. Or this mm -hmm. is how I felt. And they're doing the same thing the next week. And that's when you start to realize, oh, this is a pattern. And this isn't something that I'm causing. And that's such a huge shift that survivors have to make in these relationships is that it's not me. Yeah. That if I could solve this problem, I would have solved it a long time ago because I've been trying really hard to solve it. But it's this person's antagonistic way of being in the world. And that's why mm -hmm. we have so many problems in this relationship. And that's when you can see the patterns. Yeah. You, you talk about the importance of trusting your intuition in these relationships and especially mm -hmm. in something where in you have such a strong pull to like rationalize yourself against it. Like those two are completely at odds. Mm -hmm. Is, what are some of, I guess, the, the feelings that, that you can become more aware of and recognize as something that's, that is really a problem and not necessarily something that you have to, 
be able to like explain fully because that's you talk about our you know we're encouraged to say like you know i don't i can't understand this unless i can articulate it fully but intuition doesn't work like that and whenever you get into that world you like you start playing with fire if it's something that you're that you are i guess um pulled towards like rationalizing now now you have like mixed thoughts kind of tangling yourself up in knots so what are some of those those feelings that you can I guess, become more aware of to know, like when something's truly off, even if you can't explain why until down the road. Yeah. And that's one of the most common themes that people have when they look back on these relationships is I knew something was off from the beginning. Like my gut told me something wasn't quite right about this person or something didn't add up. And that's because of something called neuroception. So there's perception, there's the cognitive meaning we give to something. This happened because of this, that's perception. But neuroception is the nervous system always scanning the environment for cues of safety or danger. So you can neurocept that someone's not safe, but you can't cognitively explain why because it's body based. It's physiological. Mm-hmm. It's it's something that's so like primitive and just innate that you that you know. It's like why we don't walk down a dark alley or why you walk into a room and you feel that something is off, even though everybody looks fine, but you're like, there's some tension here. I don't know why. Like we've all had those experiences where we have a gut feeling and you don't know why, and you might never know what it was, but you have to trust that. And so what I talk about in the book is if you find yourself consistently put into fight, flight, freeze, or fawn, which is people pleasing, when you're around someone, really pay attention to that because that means your body is neurocepting that this person isn't safe, isn't a safe person. And so you're automatically being moved into fight where maybe you're just arguing constantly with this person. You feel like you always have to um, explain and over explain what you're doing and like fight for your point of view. Mm-hmm. Or you're moved into flight where you just try to stay so busy that you don't even have time to think about how you're feeling or process what's happening. Like you just are go, go, go kind of perfectionist person or freeze where you find yourself dissociating, just shutting down, being numb and apathetic, or fawn, which is the people pleasing, where you feel like I have to choose between my needs or your needs and it can't be both. Where yeah. you're just automatically capitulating to this person or agreeing, you don't even know why. Like part of you hates that you're doing it, but then part of you feels like you don't have a choice. Mm-hmm. So if you find yourself in any of those four responses, that is your body's way of saying this person isn't safe. And so that's definitely something to pay attention to. Yeah. Once you've gotten to that, a point like that, where, you know, you've recognized these issues that are going on and, you know, maybe accepted that, that for, for this specific relationship, it's not going to work and Mm -hmm. have managed to get out of it, then you're left with kind of the, like this damage and these wounds, um, yeah. And it's, it seems like it's, it's going to be very personal. Um, you know, it, d- dependent on each individual case, how you're going to go about fixing those problems. Well, is, is there like a general starting place to, you know, go down that road of kind of unwinding some of the things that, um, you know, that, that were caused by that relationship? The first thing people have to do is understand narcissism and narcissistic abuse, because sure. what narcissists do is so crazy, you feel crazy for explaining it. And so the understanding piece is so essential because 
we are more likely to blame ourselves for things we don't understand mm-hmm. like the the gaslighting and the passive aggressiveness and the the way that a narcissist wears you down mentally emotionally to the point where you don't even know who you are anymore you don't even know what you think how you feel about anything so understanding narcissism and how they work because it's a completely different mindset you cannot take a healthy person mindset and go well if i were in their shoes this is why i would do something like that no 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 you have to understand how a narcissist thinks first and then at the same time you really have to be building yourself up because if you've been in this relationship for any length of time you likely feel that you've lost yourself or you're definitely not who you were or maybe you don't even know what you think or feel anymore, what you like, what you don't like. So there has to be a part of where you're re-getting to know yourself or maybe discovering yourself for the first time. And so I will encourage people to create check-ins for yourself, like set reminders on your phone or put sticky notes up that says, how do I feel right now? What do I need? And reflecting on what kind of music do you like? Do you like eating breakfast or do you not? What temperature do you like the room? What drive do you prefer to take? Do you like this route or this route? Give yourself the space to get to know you. And that's not only healing, but it's going to protect you from future narcissistic relationships because it's what we don't know about ourselves Mm -hmm. that leaves us vulnerable to narcissists because then they fill the gaps. They will tell you, well, you did this because of this reason, or, you know, they'll take your you're wanting to be self-reflective and say you're over analytical and you overthink and, and, you know, you're just, that's the annoying part about you. But if you know you're a self-reflective person, you can be like, no, I just like to self-reflect. I'm not overthinking or being over overly analytical. Yeah. So knowing who you are and starting to own that is also going to protect you, whether you have to keep dealing with this narcissist or to protect you from getting into narcissistic relationships in the future. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Th- thanks a lot for um, coming on and um, yeah. talking about this. I, I, you know, again, I, I think it's it's such an underrated topic because it's it's so it seems like it's very prevalent and has, you know, various ways that it presents itself, which can be confusing. So coming across your book was was really interesting to me. Um, so yeah, th- thanks for writing that. And um, thanks for your work. And yeah, coming on and talking to me. Today. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.